coffee for Seth. No milk, no sugar. Right here. Thank you. You're listening to No Milk, No Sugar, the podcast about business beneath the sweetener. Powered by Morales Group and hosted by CEO Seth Morales, we talk to local movers and shakers about what can be the harsh reality of doing business. We cover what no one likes to advertise, but everyone wants to hear. I'm Tori, producer of the show, and today, Seth will be talking to Ascension St. Vincent CEO Jonathan Nally. Welcome. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. We're excited to, to have you on No Milk, No Sugar. I'm going to give you a little bit of context just on uh, our connection point. Jonathan and I met a couple of years ago. He was gracious enough to, to extend a, an opportunity for me to join the board of St. Vincent's Health for Ascension uh, for the state of Indiana, which is a 20 plus hospital system. And he's got over 14,000 employees under kind of guidance. And uh, Jonathan is chief and, and executive officer, CEO of, of St. B. So really excited to have him here today. And the reason why I wanted, I think this is phenomenal for No Milk, No Sugar, what you just went through over the last year with the pandemic and being in a pressure cooker situation is just, it's key, man. And I'm, I'm really anxious and I hope everyone gets some value out of you know what you've been through. But I think about the theme for today is, you know, pressure is a privilege and you've definitely been in that. Give me, give me, here's, here's kind of the first question I want to ask you. What did, what did you learn about yourself as a leader during this pandemic? You know, that's, it's, it's, it's almost multifactorial. Um, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it because it's, it's cathartic for me and it's almost some therapy for me because is is what we're moving through in a vaccinated world. We're now going to we're now gonna encounter the post-traumatic stress of those who were in healthcare, but even those who were not in healthcare but had to drastically alter their home situation, work situation, workplace situation. And so this is cathartic for me because it gives me a chance to have a little bit of you know, morales group therapy <laughs> session. Yeah, it's good, man. I love it. And it was interesting. I learned a lot about myself in that, you know, I remember my 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 first opportunity when I was home for about four days and I'd be in my home office and I'd come out at 11 and the kids were starting homeschool at that point in time based on e-learning. And I was sitting at the counter reading my phone or my computer or on a call and the kids were, you know, mommy, 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 mommy. And I would just kind of get up, you know, 20 minutes later, walk back into my office for my, you know, brunch break. And, and that night Kathleen shared with me, she said, you know, do you not hear them talking? And and it was and it was a realization of I've got to meld my two worlds together really fast for the sanity of my family and what I needed to do. So that was one of the second part was how do I need to get comfortable in a different environment, but yet still as as you would say the field general for the state of Indiana for Ascension St. Vincent's, how do I provide the directives but be seen and be heard and understand what's going on in the field, the real field of 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 battle we we're dealing with and how I needed to adjust that. And then lastly was how I needed to truly think in a long-term pandemic. You know, I've had 
power outages at hospitals. I've had, you know, snow outages. The longest you ever dealt with it was maybe five, six days. And we talked about this at a board meeting. Never have I dealt with something that's, you know, 367 days and counting. And, and that was something I you had to learn real quick. What's the parallel for the current situation, but then immediately, and, and you know, Terry Mesker, our CFO at the time, now COO, was given the task of, all right, Terry, help, help us understand what's our path forward and light at the end of the tunnel strategy look like so that we don't find ourselves at the end of this and then trying to understand what, what that next phase looks like. And so it was truly driving those at the same point in time versus a normal methodical planning process of a one-year, a three-year, five-year, seven-year type of guide point. It was, we have to do these at the same time or, or we're not going to be able to assist the community the way we should. I love it. No, that's that's a really good point about long-term thinking and then also being agile and adapting at home. I just think about your role, man. There's probably a handful of roles in the state that were as high pressure as yours. I think about Governor Holcomb, right? You know, he's got a ton of responsibility, opening, reopening. You know, you got you were on the phone with Holcomb a lot and with, with some of the hospital leaders. But at the time, I remember we had some board meetings in St. Vincent's, uh, Indianapolis, 86th Street, and I think IU downtown had a lot of the COVID surge initially. So there was a ton of pressure early, early on for you. What like, what didn't work? Um, as you kind of got into it, like what any any kind of like quick fails or flops that that popped out early that you were just like, man, if I could go back, I would do this differently. You know what? Here's the great part: there wasn't a great deal of of missteps, and it was funny. I was just I was, Dennis Murphy and I and a couple other healthcare leaders were on a call with the 500 Festival talking about this past year, and and he and I were joking in that it was the year anniversary when, you know, the governor calls you and says, Hey, you guys want to come to my office tomorrow at 10 AM? And you're saying, absolutely. And so it was, it was the governor and it was uh, Dr. Box and Dr. Sullivan and Dennis and myself and our top docs and, and folks just, and he said, all right, guys, how are we going to, how are we going to handle it? How are we going to handle it for the state of Indiana? And so Dr. Sullivan with FSSA and Dr. Box with ISDH, they're truly they're truly the the generals working under Holcomb that Indiana has seen the success of that. And if you look at missteps, the only missteps we had, I don't think we could have avoided because it was what type of of enemy are we dealing with? It was a ghost. Right. It was a ghost we couldn't understand and didn't know much about. And so it was you know, trying to throw everything at it from coordination of care to even, you know, at the time we were talking about, well, if we have these plexiglass boxes when we intubate a patient, will that help not aerosolize viral particles? And it was, well, no, that doesn't work now that we know it. And and if you understand that, it was then how are we collecting data? as health systems, large health systems, getting it to the state, understanding the data. And it was merely just a, almost a process of elimination. And at times you're pulling your hair out because you're saying, how, how can we not do this? We're a highly educated society. We've got great state resource. And it was a lot of, of that. But what came out of those, I, don't, I wouldn't even call them missteps. It was just almost the, what are we trying? What do we got to try? What's next? I mean, it was literally daily phone calls for Gosh, I mean, it was 24-7 for probably, I don't know, 10 weeks, 12 weeks with it. And so I wouldn't know if I'd call them missteps, but just, man, we were trial by error, trial and trial and error, trial and error, trial and error. And that's what led us, I think, to where we are today. 
No, that's rich, man. When you think about, I, I love your analogy of it's a, it was like a ghost. It was like this phantom trying to catch. Doing that process of elimination was was definitely, I, I could see that. I could hear that, especially sitting on some of these board calls. You were open to whatever and, and being real flexible and nimble to try on a lot of things. What about, you know, the, the healthcare system, the healthcare um, team being on the front lines and going through a lot? Uh, I'm sure you've had this question, but just mental health wise, as a leader, what, what are some things that you've learned or that you guys are all doing to support, you know, those nurses that were on the front lines that, that have been through a lot that are worn out or that have had mental fatigue or, or exhausted? What, what comes to mind for you with that, that question? Well, you know, that's where you could almost say that was one of the learnings or was it a misstep or just a, a trial and error was how do we support them? Right. It was it, it was you, you didn't understand what our associates and if you look at those frontline caregivers early on, you know, you have nurses and you have respiratory therapy and you've got even just the registration folks dealing with people who do I have COVID? Do I not have COVID? Do I, I have a, I have a temperature? And is this temperature different than what I've had it in the past? And so it, it took us really a, a little bit of time to understand what those frontline caregivers were going through when they leave work for the day. And because we had to really understand quickly, well, what is their mental capacity in that they're dealing with this? And it's great at work. We've got them set with all the PPE they could want and you know keep them shrouded to protect them. But it's still the mental aspect of well, they'd go home and, you know, you hear a lot of stories of they would strip down naked in their garage because they didn't know what COVID transmission was looking like. What could it be? And it was, well, let me do this and let me get different calls, call, clothes on. And so it was it was truly hearing a lot of those stories on our command calls that literally were daily and sometimes twice daily just to hear those stories. And then it was, what do, our, what do we need to do? And that's when you saw, you know, hoteling born out of, of those stories or how is it we can keep them fed or just what can we do to refresh or recharge them? What can we do to take care of their kids? How is it we support them? Because we know we, we, if they're, if they're prepared for work and they're focused on that and it might be an eight a 10 a 12, a 16 hour shift, we just need them to sleep, but they need somebody to take care of their kids because their kids are at home. And it was it was a lot of those pieces of it. And so early on, it was very it was just raw and unscripted as as the pandemic drew on. We were able to catch our breath and and then understand, well, how do we set up the support of food delivery for our staffs? And that's when you saw community members and organizations, they truly dove in and it was not only are they providing food, which, you know, what, what organization doesn't love it when you can feed their staff fun things and stresses burn in different kind of calories, but it was also, hey, masks, masks are this new thing and it's, well, my ears bother me. How do you come up with little plastic things that help that? Or, you know, I can't have my face in a mask and so what kind of lotion can we get them? Or you know, how do we have gum or mints out so they can, you know, put those in little care packages that we would hand out for them? It truly was that. And now we are focusing on that next next phase of, of support. And so we've set up a few months ago these these types of lounges or areas where a staff member can have respite. 
and just take 15 minutes in, in blackout. We even had talked at times, could we give them computer lounges where they could go on Christmas shopping online and be able to do that and that we don't know what their day was like. And we had conversations about, um, and this was something that actually stuck as we were trying to figure out staffing and admissions and discharges. Cindy Adams, our chief nursing officer, came up with the idea with a bunch of her CNOs who report to her and other staff members of, could we try virtual admission and discharge nurses? Take that burden off that direct caregiver and, and how is that? And then we most recently went through and we did uh, uh, a protocol change where we went through and we took out, I want to say almost 500 of these unnecessary steps in our medical records and processes to say, okay, is that, can that decompress some of the muck and mire that is unnecessary to a caregiver's job? And now we're trying to understand what truly is PTSD really going to look like in a, in a, in a vaccinated COVID world? And how do we set up from associate health, those clinical resources for our caregivers and frontline staff who just, we know it's going to hit at some point in time. We want to make sure we're there to, you know, catch them again. And, and as you know, it's not going to be perfect, but it's, that's our, that's our charge. That's our responsibility to all those people to, to try to just keep coming up with ideas and listening to them about what, what matters. Yeah, no, that's, I think one takeaway there, which is a, a great learning is lean in, listen, and keep trying different ideas to, that to try to, you know, solve for something that we've never been through before, or in this, in this, in this uh, situation, you know, another thought that comes to my mind, I, I think about when I was coming to the office uh, last year, driving in and I, I drive by the 86th street hospital. And I just, I think of you, I, I sent you a couple like random texts, maybe in the morning or in the evening. Hey man, thinking about you, praying for you. How, how, like for you in this like role, this is such a, a high pressure situation. I mean, three plus billion dollars, 14,000 employees, multiple people are, are on the front lines. This is just like front and center. How did you personally, like, what did you do tactically to deal with the pressure? Did you have an outlet? Was it, hey, I needed to play golf. Hey, I need to spend time with kids. Or, hey, I needed to just go bed early in the morning. Like, what what did you do to offset this? First and foremost, you know, Ascension St. Vincent in Indiana is is part of Ascension, a national organization, as, as you know well. To have a corporate resource and a corporate parent such as Ascension, there were certain pieces that I was able to just park right here knowing that I have the resource group, which is our national group purchasing organization, that we had our challenges. You know, don't don't get me wrong, but personal protective equipment, PPE was never one of them. Even at times when it was, all right, we have seven days of this or 14 days of this, because they were so strong, and that was Daniel Torado here in the state, Scott Caldwell, who's the CEO of that subsidiary of Ascension, never had to worry about it. I mean, they were they were chartering C-130s full of supplies back to the United States. So that was, you know, those are pieces I didn't have to worry about. And, and those are, there's numerous. We had uh, twice weekly calls. The Ascension National Command Center was based here in Indianapolis. And so, again, I had the chance if I needed to, I could run over there and, and chat with those those individuals and and so that was one element of a pressure release and that I knew because of our corporate parent in Ascension nationally 
they had it and the resources were there, which is always the benefit of a, of a larger company and organization. The second was, uh, and when this is a, a funny story, I, I like to run, you know, since I have my, my cardiac issues, it's, it's just, you know, constant. And so I got the bright idea of wanting a new treadmill and literally I sold our treadmill and elliptical on Facebook marketplace, right. As the pandemic was starting. And when I went to go purchase a new Peloton treadmill that I really wanted, they quit delivering them. And so it was, what am I going to do? And so Kathleen says, you just got to get outside, bundle up. And, and so that's a lot of, you know, there's probably two elements of it. Kathleen and I got to commiserate at night when the kids were in bed and, and she and I would just sit and, and really we did puzzles, you know, puzzles was a, was a lot, it was a, was a big decompressor for me. The second was because the kids were at home I've always found a work environment at home where the kids are, the kids are involved in it. And so, you know, if I showed you around my office right now, there's obviously pictures of them, but I have their toys here and there's a, you know, a teepee that was set up here that's now laying on a chair and it's incorporating them. It's it just, there's just a constant smile because of that. And then, and then lastly is, is how do I get out and just have that exercise? You know, my, my physicians, my personal docs have always been good about encouraging that and driving that. And that was something that was real important and allowed me an outlet to just get away. And it, and it, and it was one, I could open the windows of my home office and there'd be times when the weather started turning, I would just sit out on the ledge of my, my windows and take phone calls just so I could, you know, be outside and engage in the fresh air and just try to have it. Because again, for gosh, I don't know how many weeks it was, it was literally 24 seven is we'd be doing something. You get a phone call and you got to jump on it because you you literally have to provide response or, or information. Yeah. No, I'm taking notes here. I like how you've incorporated your kids. I know I've been on a couple of Google hangout calls with you and the kids have been running around and you've just made it work, man, which is, which is great. I think I was talking to another executive CEO yesterday and he can't do things that he can't work at home. He can't make it, he can't make it happen. So um, hats off to you for that. You know, the other thing I think about is just your legacy going through this, this pandemic. I'm not, I'm not here to kind of idolize you or put you on a pedestal, but man, you've gone through, you've gone through a lot. And you think about, you've been with St. V's, you took over as CEO and market executive in 2014. Is that correct? Seven years. Yeah. It's been over seven. A great seven year run, but to, to have kind of that legacy of, Hey, you know, I was able to kind of, um, you know, man the ship and you do a great job of giving credit to others. So I know you're not going to like bite into this question, but it's cool to think about your legacy, but I'm, I'm curious, like, are you, are you worn down at all? Cause I, I am personally, man. And I don't, I've got like a, a fraction of what you do. And I'm I'm worn down. Any any thoughts there? You you got ton of energy and you're ready to go. I mean, you look how big Morales Group is. You you've got the weight of the world on your shoulders. I mean, look at how big you are in the country and how many individuals underneath that. I believe you shoulder some of the same responsibility with it. You're right. I you know I just turned 46. So do I think about my legacy at 46? I don't. As I've grown, I had great sponsors. At community health systems, I've got credible sponsors at Ascension, and it's really just the trust of your sponsors. and And I can I can safely say, pretty much every community I've lived in and then have moved on from, 
I could, I can comfortably say, you know, did I have a part in that? And I would say almost all of them, there was a nice little positive piece that just, we were able to, to ascend it and then have an impact. And, and, you know, more importantly, they taught me more than I taught them, especially gosh, in my twenties and thirties, those, you know, they wrapped around a kid and it was just, I think they realized their community would be better. If we wrap around and help this kid, then he'll help us. And, and move on. And I think, you know, maybe that's a part of a legacy in that you just want them to always have a warm spot. Oh, when, when Jonathan was CEO here in Valparaiso or Jonathan was the COO here in Philly or Pottstown, Pennsylvania, or Oneida, Tennessee, that, you know, he did some nice things. We're, we're better because of it. That I would, you know, you'd love to see at some point in time. The pandemic has taught us all, as you know, especially of a, you know, a dad of, of young kids is how do we incorporate even more really what matters in getting our jobs done and the impact it has in the community and what our business does for, as a as a you know mission but also what do we do for the people who work for us and, and the impact as a corporate citizen and that you know one you hear this a lot and it goes back to you know my kids running around here bringing them to work you know you hear so many individuals talk about how they didn't get to see their kids grow up or, oh, I wish I was, you know, present more. And we've gotten better as a, as a society and a business community, but how do we truly make that change once and for all and recognize the, the new version of what an intertwining work and home life is and where our kids play a role and how, you know, how do you, how do you stamp out any potential future regret of, I didn't see my kids grow up. And it's like, nope, I did. I got to go. I, I had an organization that supported it, not only in words, but in actions. And and I have um, kids who recognize it. And my spouse, you know, saw that, you know, burden off of them a little bit. And and it's no longer a burden because you're, you're actually engaged in it. You know, that would be a, a legacy for us all who are business leaders with young kids. Because you talk about you know, our mentors and those statesmen who went before us and some of them still say, but like, oh, you know, I wish I got to do that more. And it's, well, we've got a chance to do that. And so it's, how do we incorporate that more? But the other part is, is you, you know, you mentioned it in terms of pressure as a privilege. And, you know, I was thinking to myself, we use the term lean in a lot and you, you said it earlier, that's what this pandemic did. It just, it forces you to lean in. And, and if you look at that in the eyes of those who are younger than you and I, and still trying to understand or, or have all that energy of, of driving forward. And it's, and it's, how do you tell them you lean in because it's something you condition yourself to always do. You don't recognize it when you're doing it. You recognize it after the fact, or if somebody says, Hey, I need you to lean in more, you lean in more. And that's, and, and I can say, you know, sure, I didn't do that, or I did that, our leadership did that, our frontline caregivers, they, they, they didn't not lean in. They were constantly leaning in, and, and, and to some degree, a lot of them have not even set back yet uh, regarding this pandemic. And so that's what I think that pressure is a privilege. It's you have to condition yourselves that your first instinct Right. Is that fight or flight? It's going to be that fight. It's going to be I'm just going to lean in and I'm going to I'm going to gauge the field of battle leaning in. And then I could figure out what goes on. It's like, you know, I had a baseball coach tell me when a ground ball hits to you, your first movement is down, you know, where it is with your glove on the ground so that you can react versus up where you don't put yourself in that position. And so for us, it's teach yourself to lean in constantly. And that's your first almost auto response. 
And, and you just build that over time with muscle memory. And then you look back and say, well, I did lean in or I listened to my sponsors or I trusted my sponsors and I just kept, you know, you go in, then, then you have a chance to maneuver versus you start out and you, then you have to run into the, the burning building. That muscle memory of leaning in and, and getting better at that is definitely, uh, it, it, it benefits you as a, as a leader and it transfers over whether you're in healthcare, you're in staffing or whatever else, um, at, at across the board. But talk to me about, um, you know, just macro level healthcare. There's been some shifts. It's been interesting being on the board and watching some things kind of at, at a high level. If there's one, two, three things that kind of stick out, like as we go forward into the future, what are some things that are kind of shifting uh, underneath your guys' feet? And what are you, what are you seeing and how you get to deal with it? Healthcare has shifted. Healthcare delivery has shifted. I believe it's, it's, it's shifted because we had to advance even faster, I believe, evolution that was going to occur. It was going to occur because, yes, there's, you know, governmental agencies are saying, well, this is how we need to, to reimburse you. But more importantly, the societal and, and, and patient expectation and perception is forcing that change. And that, to me, is great to see. But now it's our responsibility in healthcare to help engage that and, and continue to teach that so that it is 100% meaningful and not just perceptive with it. And so the change that has already occurred is, you know, as you've heard, is the move to virtual-based care, which is great. And we want to continue to see that. But it's we now have the responsibility in healthcare delivery to teach that what is appropriate virtual care versus what perception would be. And the great part about it is we're letting all of our clinicians write that script. That's that's their job to say what's in what's in their clinical medical opinion with that. The next part that we're seeing is again a tolerance or a lack of tolerance about you know what is an element of how does healthcare work or how do I pay for healthcare? And again, that's great because you see an opportunity to lean in and say, well, how do I teach the average consumer? How do I teach a corporation? How do I teach the company HR benefits firm about what, what does that mean? And, and as you know, the more you can shine a light on it in a apolitical fashion, you can truly engage people and you see a healthier workforce and a healthier community. The the last piece that I see that will will be that will come is what does true healthcare delivery look like from a competitive standpoint in the in the future? And that's gonna that's gonna take a little bit longer because you've got the healthcare stimulus dollars that are going to delay some of, of what that could or should or need to look like for consolidation or mergers and acquisitions. But that will come because the government has learned how healthcare in a crisis has been delivered. The consumer has learned how healthcare is delivered. And so right now we are focusing on global consumer confidence to have people feel more comfortable about just engaging outside of their house We've learned that once that occurs, we know people who have been hesitant to seek medical care because they're still scared about, well, could I get COVID in a hospital or in my doctor's office? And, and what we've learned is, and we continue to communicate is, hospitals and doctor's offices are probably more of the safer options just because of the constant cleanliness and the PPE that's available versus a retail aspect that, that just has a different level of infection control. But as we've got to help the mindset of the consumer, once that begins to happen, it gives us a whole new theater or stage or platform for how do we teach that 
level of consumer-driven healthcare technology because of the role that it played in such a fast ramp up is changing. But the the other piece that I think we're going to see that I'm excited about is what's the relationship that health systems have with their state Department of Health and also county health departments? And how do we see a tightening of those resources? Because one, individuals who have commercial insurance, it's going to be easy for them to find health care options. It's how do we still move after and find care for those who are in the margins or vulnerable or don't have an acumen understanding? We've got to go further into the communities to help teach that. So I think that's where you're going to see some great evolution of how do we reach out into people's homes and their settings and their environments to deliver healthcare, um, either through technology or just investment of what a health system is prepared to do to advance what is in a traditional home health setting for certain post-acute care to all aspects of it. Man, I'm going to be excited to watch all this unveil over the next year or two, sitting on the board and watching all this kind of macro shifts in the, the health system. It's been good, man. I, I the, the telehealth thing was fascinating. Like our business, we had to shift from, you know, in-person recruiting to, you know, recruiting um, virtual. And uh, I, I just see some, some cool things coming out of it. You've done a great job of building a team around you. Um, you've got an excellent executive team and it's been fun to see you kind of give, you dole out a lot of the credit. You kind of take that kind of humble servant uh, leadership approach, which I, I appreciate, man. If there's um, like anything that you wanted to maybe leave um, with the, the audience today, anything that sticks out, sometimes I'm not good on the off the cuff, but anything that sticks out just from a leadership thing that's transferable, whether you're in healthcare or something else, what, what sticks out to you, man? I, again, I think you're being humble. I think you talk about you're not good at off the cuff, but you managed to catch that Drew Brees pass that one time. That's 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 a pretty good that's a pretty good off the cuff moment you can hang your hat on. It's funny. I think you look at you know Rick Pitino, you look at a Matt Painter. You're right. They have a way to, to kind of see into the eyes and the souls of of kids who have most likely been never told no, and they have a way to tell them here's what it's going to take, and they just drive it. And a lot of them aren't perfect or superstars. It's not like you have Michael Jordan coming out. It's they truly take talent and they polish and sharpen and hone. And that's a leadership gift that I've learned from um, really from from Rick Pitino in the past. When I saw these players that you know I went to college with and you went to college with and you see that growth, it's a couple pieces. One, as I've recruited, I learned these lessons from my dad who was um upper management at IBM and Lexmark for years about how do you constantly engage with those that you're relying on. And it truly is. If you look, gosh, all the way back to to what Jesus did with the apostles, he washed their feet. And so you constantly have to think of that. And that's an exercise we do at our Ascension Leadership Academy is on the first residential, it's, you know, you're washing the feet of your peers and your and those that um, you're working with. And it you have to look back on that and say, what am I doing in constant communication with them to guide them, to lead them, to learn from them, solicit their feedback. And, you know, as we've recruited, I, I might catch, I might catch heat at times because I might be long in recruitment versus short in recruitment, but I've always felt I'd rather take a longer point in time to recruit. And those of us who are there bear bear a little bit longer of a brunt of, of sharing responsibilities to find esprit de corps 
the esprit de corps is, is the magic ingredient. And I believe we've been successful in this administration for seven plus years because of it. As you know, great organizations and can find great talent. You know, there's great positions and there's always opportunity to have people interview for it. And so we've always, we've never had an issue finding great didactic technical talent. It's the esprit de corps with whoever that officer corps is at that time. How do we feel? And as you know, that's changed. We've had some great leaders come and go and have promotions and retired. And it's, again, who's that group there and how do they feel and how do they incorporate that as they're providing me feedback that I then take seriously because it's all right. Sure, I might get to make a final decision, but as the leader, I've got to incorporate all of that back in there. And I, I do that with great concern as to what their feelings and their minds and their hearts are playing into it. And, and so that's that's our that's our mantra is, is it is related to bringing in new new talent to the organization. And it's been wonderful related to those executives who've joined us and they just dive in and they take it. And again, we see the evolution of of different leaders that have you know, been with us. You look at Cindy Adams, our CNO. She's been with us now. She's the longest tenured officer reporting to me at six years. Cheryl Harmon just retired before us. Mike Mullins. Cindy now, when she came in, she was the newest. And now she's the senior statesperson of, of the officers in that peer group. And so it's how do we evolve? And then the role that I play of saying, All right, well, what's that mean? How do you wash their feet in different ways to help them engage and see it and then engage in that conversation and keep driving them forward about the global mission? Love it, man. I love it. Sharpen, polish, take your time hiring, build that cohesive unit. I love it. By the way, man, can you hoop? Do you have any hoop skills? Just like, can you, can you chop it up on the court or are you not, not much of a player? If I look at all the sports I've played and still play, basketball is the least. I would probably compare myself to a very clunky... <laughs> Bulldozers, Bill Lambeer of the Detroit Pistons. I would stay away from you, man. So I'll play. I'll play, but there's going to be injuries, right? People are going to be bruised out of it. Wow, wow. Uh, That'd be fun to see you out on the court, man. Well, Bill Lambeer, clunky Bill Lambeer. Bill Lambeer in general is clunky, so you're saying you're a clunky Bill Lambeer. Okay, there you have it, man. Uh, Bill Jr. Jonathan, man, thank you for your time today. I appreciate you sharing. Uh, It's been wonderful and and seeing you lead you know through some some real challenging times and uh i've personally been taking a lot of notes and thank you for for sharing today with our our audience and i just wanted to say uh thanks again for making time well seth i appreciate it you morales group as you know when when you and i met i got to meet your your dad at the same point in time and just when you look at the nature of your business and the family aspect of it it's been it's been great to be tied to you and just a chance to dialogue this way has been super fun. Um, we talk about your miraculous catch that was just wonderful since you back in the day. Uh, Jonathan Nally, CEO, St. Vincent's. Uh, appreciate your time, man. Thanks, Seth. Appreciate it. So it was great talking to Jonathan today. I loved how we explored certain themes like pressure is privilege, especially Jonathan being in the role and what he just went through over the last year. A few takeaways that I thought were were pretty sticky. One was just this idea of intertwining work and home and that balance and how you figure that out early on. I think Jonathan uh, stumbled a little bit. Uh, I think he got um, he got better at it over time and being able to take phone calls, 
juggle the massive amount of pressure that he had leading a billion dollar organization and also filling his wife's cup up and being a, a team player and helping out with the kids. That's, that's a, a, that's a new norm that he had to adjust and adapt into that part that Jonathan shared about dealing with an intangible enemy or an unknown ghost being the virus and not knowing how to, you know, there's no playbook for that. No leader has been through that ever in a lifetime and figuring out how to um, troubleshoot, how to, you know, I think, what would he say? Trial by error, uh, testing a lot of things and, and leaning in and listening to his team and just trying their best to uh, figure out how to, how to catch the unknown ghost. And it's been cool to see him uh, come through that and um, come out on the other side winning. Again, this is Seth Morales. You're listening to No Milk, No Sugar. We look forward to catching up with you on our next podcast. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of No Milk, No Sugar, the podcast about business beneath the sweetener. We hope you learned something and we'd love to hear from you. Tag us with hashtag no milk, no sugar, or email us at no milk, no sugar pod at gmail.com or connect with Seth on LinkedIn. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and we'll see you next time.